Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Juan Scarlett. Juan is from the class of 2001, and he is currently Managing Director at One Valley Ventures. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Juan, to start off, you know, we love to hear about your origin story. So start us from the beginning. Tell us about your family, where you grew up, how you grew up. Start there. So I grew up in uh, Daytona Beach, Florida, which is sort of a small, mid-sized town in central Central Florida, oldest of four children. I mean, I grew up in you know, what I would consider to be certainly a very loving and hardworking and certainly very practical family. And we were kind of, I'd call it lower middle income, upper, middle, upper lower income kind of thing. Parents were very hardworking and we really just worked hard to make sure that we had everything that we needed and maybe a few of the things that we wanted. And, uh, you know, for those other things you wanted, it was very clear that from a very early age, you had to go make your own money to do those things. Right. I always grew up with, with that in mind, that sort of, okay, well, I always need to make sure that I'm making money to, to do the things that I want to do and to make sure that I can take care of the things that I need to do as well. And so that was kind of the first lessons that I learned uh, at, a, at a very early age. And I know certainly it's kind of stayed with me and probably, you know, the reasons for a lot of the different things I've done in my career. And also, you know, just in my life in general, you know, still have very much such a practical creature about me. But I, I would say that, you know, the older I get, you know, the more open and, and risk-taking I, I have been. But yeah, a very practical upbringing, I would say, that sort of was a precursor for a lot of other things in my life. The hard work, hard work was always the, the key thing and always came before fun. And, you know, my mother always stressed the hard work, higher education, and then religion. So again, I did grow up in the South, so religion was, was a big part of my upbringing as well. I'd say the hard work and the higher education stayed with me more than the religion as I matured myself. And that was really just a life choice. I'd say I, I enjoyed my upbringing and obviously you know, loved my family, but I was also very eager to just sort of get out of Florida once, once I had an opportunity to do so really after college. Yeah. So, I mean, it looks like for undergrad, you studied accounting. What, what led you into accounting? How, how did you choose that? So that was sort of that practical, <laughs> that sort of practical upbringing, right? I mean, um, I think I knew at a, at a fairly early age that I wanted to be in business in some form or factor. It wasn't clear what that was. As a, as a high school, I didn't know necessarily what, what I wanted to do in business, but I knew that I wanted to be in the business world and probably somewhere in, in the financial world. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I started studying you know, majors and then thinking about the way the career paths following those majors, it felt like accounting would give me, you know, being an accounting major would give me a nice base for, you know, a career in business and give me sort of multiple pathways out of that major. In terms of my decision to attend Florida A&M, which is, which is sort of the back of the university, I think for me, it was, it was, it was a very personal one. So again, coming from a very practical family, we were very much cognizant of the cost of attending university and making sure that I had financial support to do so either in the way of scholarships or loans that I, that I would have to take out to support my education. And so a lot of my focus for my undergraduate university was on public universities, like good public universities, mostly in the South. And I ended up, I had, had some members of my family, including uh, my mother and stepfather who had gone to Florida A&M but, but didn't graduate when they were younger. And I had gone to visit Florida A&M and I just fell in love with the campus and the student body and certainly the, the comfort of being around students who looked like me and who had similar upbringings as me was a very big deal because you know, I had sort of spent my middle school, high school years sort of getting bussed out of my neighborhood 
to other schools that were predominantly white for the most part, I would say. And so I, I really wanted the opportunity to really learn in an environment that more diversity and more people that look like me in the classrooms. And so that was primarily what led me to Florida A&M. And, and they had a great undergraduate business school, the School of Business and Industry, that was highly regarded and had developed these amazing relationships with the Fortune 500 companies all over the world that would come to recruit on campus. And I thought that, one, they had done a great job of you know, developing pathways for aspiring professionals to enter corporate America. And I feel like that was something that really drew me to university. And actually, that, that sort of idea of you know, the way that school developed their pathways to corporate America, that's sort of the same function that I think needs to happen with the VC industry and the startup world. You, again, you have to be very intentional about developing these pathways and finding minority professionals where they are. And a lot of times that means you have to kind of go outside of your own distant networks to do that. And I do think some companies have gotten better about doing that. So I graduated, once I graduated my undergrad from Florida A&M University, I had a great offer to join Arthur Anderson. They were one of the, one of the top firms at that time. And I had a great opportunity to join them, work with uh, Arthur Anderson in Atlanta, jumped at the opportunity to do that. And listen, I loved working at Arthur Anderson. A lot of the people that I worked with learned a lot, I think, over the several years that I was there. But as you note, it's still accounting and it's, it's, it's a lot of financial statement reviews and audits. And at least at that time, you know, in Atlanta, Atlanta was a, was a business center for the South, but it was very different than what it is today. It wasn't a tech business center. It was more, you know, manufacturing, utilities, some telecom. And so that was, that was a lot of the companies that it's auditing and doing reviews for at the time. So right. very boring, static work. That um, I think over time, I just came to not really enjoy as much. And also, I wasn't really, I didn't think it was as impactful to the businesses that we were working with at the time. You know, I, think, I think they've grown now to kind of develop more services around audits and reviews. And while those are still necessary functions, I think they're trying to make those more impactful. At the time, they were very straightforward. And I, I just didn't think, I got to a point where I didn't think I was learning as much. And I wanted to learn more. And interestingly, you're in the same way that you sort of change your major, got a new way through your undergrad. I kind of learned that lesson while I was working at Arthur Anderson. I was like, oh, wait, you know what? I really don't like accounting so much, but I still love corporate finance. And I really think I like investment banking, which I had some exposure to on the kind of projects that I worked on while at Arthur Anderson with investment banks. Yeah. And, and I do have to ask, you know, you, I, I saw that you did your internship at City, your summer associate internship. At City in New York, and you were living in Atlanta before you started school. How did you come to cross coast and, and pick Haas? <laughs> Again, gr- growing up in the South, the South was kind of all I knew. Like I knew Florida and I knew then Georgia after undergrad. And while I had traveled a little bit around the United States, I don't think I had been to California yet. Well, actually, it's not true. I'd been once on sort of a family trip. You know, again, while I was kind of coming through Arthur Anderson and, and, make, and kind of getting to the realization that I didn't want to do that the rest of my career. As I started to think about investment banking and going back to business school to do that, I was focusing on initially on primarily East Coast schools that were big finance-centric schools. And so all of those big names were on my list. And I applied, I think, to five of them and got into the fourth. You know, during that process, I had some family that was living, that was living in California. And they were like, hey, you know, there's two great business schools out here, actually three great business schools out here. We won't mention the one of them. 
but there were two and you know that were public universities uh, that were great had great business schools and so i was like oh that's interesting like i hadn't thought about that and then as i started thinking about it more i was like well that's looking even way more interesting because i actually also want to get more exposure to technology right and guess where everything was happening in the tech world at that time you know this was 1998 when i was applying and, and really developing that list and pre-bubble yeah yeah and so it was everything you heard about technology was coming from right the bay area and so it's like well huh that's interesting because one of the schools that you know i was starting to think about was right in the bay area so I like, well i need to look at this more and as i started to look at haas more and more i really started to really like and, and eventually love what i was seeing and then when i visited you know, actually seeing and feeling it in person was, was like okay this is the school that's this here's what this is what i'm going and so it really was this really big change for my initial focus from you know, really East Coast focus, investment banking, quote, finance focus to Haas, which is, which is not very finance focused in terms of business school. It's just not as big as it is in the East Coast. I can, right. East Coast, you go to school and 80%, 90% of the students are focusing on careers in finance, consulting, or, or investment banking. Haas, it's kind of, it was almost like the opposite. When I, when I came to Haas, I said, oh, maybe only 20% of the school is actually interested in investment banking and finance and, and I think it may have been lower because I was actually the head of the finance club, the corporate finance club at, at Haas. And I think we may have had 25 members of the kind of 240 people in our class and really 480 in the entire school. Yeah. So it was a small club, but that was pretty interesting to me too, because I was like, well, I don't want to go to a place where everyone else is doing the exact same thing as me. Mm-hmm. I want to go to an environment where it, you know, people are doing all kinds of different things. You know, people are working from healthcare, I know people that were more certainly in technology and product management and who already had business ideas they were developing and people that were interested in biotech. And so I was just like, that just seems way more interesting to me as an, as a learning environment than an environment that was really, really more focused on really you know, one or two dominant job areas. And so those are kind of the two big things I think that were, were really a big deal for me when I started to look at business schools. And then when I really started to key in on, on Haas. Was kind of the first two big things. And then the third was really just that that feeling of community. It was just so different. Like again, when I visited several of the schools, the feeling that I got from being on those campuses and, and, and talking with the other prospective students and current students, it was just completely different. I mean, it was when I came to the Haas presentation weekend, it was just, you know, you immediately started falling into these friendships and cool conversations and, and immediately started going, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Let's go, let's go for a hike instead of, you know, and then we'll come to this thing and then we'll do that thing. And, and where everything else was just very, hi, my name is so and so. And, you know, I'm, you know, here, my, here's my background and our professional background and what I've done. And, and house was just so much different. It felt, it felt very different to me. Yeah. It was just so much more comfortable to me. And I, I really enjoyed that. I'm really curious how you went from that to venture capital. If you could walk us through that post MBA. Life. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's, it's interesting. I always tell people who, who ask me about venture and how I got to venture that it always feels like almost everyone's pathway to venture is different. There certainly are some, I would say, some defined pathways into venture. There's a couple of defined pathways into venture that, that everyone kind of knows about. You start successful startup founder, you decided you just wanted to get into investing, and you kind of used the founding of a startup to make your way into venture, or you you, know, you worked at before you worked at an investment bank that then gets you an opportunity maybe at in you know, sort of corporate development at a startup that then leads you into venture as well. Those are kind of a couple of pathways that are pretty pretty defined pathways for venture. Or obviously, there's also the technical side, computer science, engineering. 
and again, had a launching company that I worked for a company that um, you know, ended up getting more progressive leadership roles. That's another another way to make a way in the venture. I didn't do any of those. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so despite, again, going into grad school, looking originally at sort of investment banking and corporate finance as being the, my, my original focus, having done an internship you know, during my first and second year in grad school at Haas, I realized during that summer that I don't think investment banking is great for me either. <laughs> um, like I, I was told at the time that I was fortunate to actually get put on some live transactions that were happening that summer because, again, this was summer 2000. So there weren't a whole lot of live transactions happening in summer 2000. <laughs> they just needed hands, right? Like warm bodies, I feel like. You know, the IPO market had started to dry up at that point. Oh, really? Already? Yeah. yeah no, no, so that summer, the IPO market had started to dry up. Actually, so March of 2000 was when kind of everything started to collapse. Oh. Uh, and so that's, the stock market had, had taken a dive in that, that March. Uh, and then that summer, we could already see like that the IPO pipeline started to dry up. And again, I was I was at City, City Solomon's with Barney, and there were 120 interns probably, I think, from different business schools. Jesus. <laughs> wow. Across the bank, not all in iBanking, but I think 60 or 70 of us were in, were in iBanking. But they had a massive, and a lot of the other interns were just having a great summer. <laughs> they were really enjoying New York. Human Resources Group had all these different activities that a lot of the interns were able to do. But I was on several live transactions that some were in investment banking, so I was not involved in any of those things. I was always at my desk working or waiting for a phone call to give me more work that I knew was coming that didn't come usually until six o'clock in the evening and then meant that I had to work overnight to actually get that thing done. Yeah. Uh, and so I just <laughs> I kind of fell out of love with investment banking, I think, at that point. And I started to think, okay, well, maybe this is it for me necessarily. But then the practical side of me started saying, okay, well, got a great job offer here to come back you know, after I graduate. You know, it's great money. It's going to be good experience. You know, it'll be a good experience to look great on my resume, but I'm, I know I'm not going to enjoy it. I know, I'm not, I know I won't love it. I know, you know, I know I'm not going to really enjoy that several years that I had been spending there. And that was, that was partially the Haas in me at that point. Hey, I hadn't been at Haas for one year. I already learned that doing something that you don't enjoy just was not going to be fulfilling for you. Or for you know the company that you were doing it for, or you know, starting a company, your own company. Right. In my first year, I learned that at Haas either from you know, my coursework or from probably more from my colleagues and, and other students. So I, I just decided that you know that was kind of the first big kind of change in my thinking. I think in terms of my, my professional career, well, I want to make sure I do something that I enjoy and that I you know, still have time to actually enjoy things outside of work as well. And I knew that wasn't going to be a missing thing. Well, at least to start my career. Uh, and so when I got back to Haas, after my summer internship, I started looking into you know, different pathways, really, again, to stay in corporate finance, but not necessarily into banking. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll work for, you know, for a company in corporate finance. But at that point, you know, the pathway there was still going through investment banking and then, then jumping over into working for you know, the company. And then I said, well, I actually had, I had a great class my second, second year, first semester, it was a, an investing course. It was at night with, I think it was an evening MBA course, um, but it was available to the full-time MBAs as well. And it was an investing course taught by two professionals who were Haas alums. David Stadlin was one. He was um, the portfolio manager at Weintraub Capital at the time, basically a hedge fund, and they invested in public equities. And, and the entire course was just about, here's how you actually you know, take what you've learned, you know, your first year of business school, and apply it to actual investing in stocks. And so I was like, well, 
I had done some of my own investing stocks and I thought I knew what I was doing there and I really didn't. Um, but I thought I knew what I was doing. And that, but that investment course really opened my eyes to, well, wait, you know, this, this idea of public equity investing, investing in general as a career was, was even more interesting, I think, than, than investment banking. Because investment banking, I was thinking was, I had always thought of it as, okay, well, I'll, I'll go into investment banking. I'll work in investment banking, you know, and maybe make it to a vice president or director and then leave to go to lead a finance department or lead, or be, you know, be a CFO at a, at a company. That was kind of the, the original thought. But in that class, I enjoyed so much the discussions that we were having and researching stocks and researching companies that it kind of changed my, my thoughts around what I wanted to do coming out of school. And so that was really kind of where the initial investing, you know, really hardcore interest in investing started and really started to, I started to nurture it at that point and then worked. You know, coming out of Haas, I you know, had a couple of opportunities to work in public equity investing and, and thought that would be interesting to do as well, particularly if I can focus on a, you know, one specific sector and develop an expertise in that sector. And that ended up being enterprise software, which was great because, again, that was kind of your know, key core technology area at the time. That still is. That evolved to cloud, cloud software you know, now and now AI and machine learning. But that was kind of my initial you know, sort of foray into technology and into investing at the same time. And then while doing that, I started developing an interest in venture capital as well, because I covered the enterprise software sector broadly for Dane Rosher Wessels, then Royal Bank of Canada, RBC Capital. And they actually had acquired Dane Rosher Wessels covering enterprise software for that bank. The core of our coverage was really focused on public stocks, but we also had to develop competency in you know, sort of late state private companies who would potentially be public companies in the near future. And so I started to really develop this capacity to understand what was happening in sort of late stage venture capital initially. And that's kind of where I really started to develop an interest in venture capital. And hey, this is a lot of the very similar things that I'm doing now. You know, I'm, I'm doing, spending all this time developing real deep knowledge of sort of the sector, the technology, product, market, competitive, you know, competitive environment, et cetera, to really make a sort of a buy, sell, hold, call on stock, right? which was great. I, I enjoyed doing that. But then I started looking at, okay, well, how is that different venture capital? There's a lot of similarities, but you're also working directly with you know, the founders and executive teams of these, of these companies to, to make the companies better. And that sounded way more interesting to me. And so after working in public equities for around five years, I had an opportunity to jump over to, at that time, called kind of buy side versus sell side. You know, I was on the sell side, which was the investment bank slash research side, which were you know, selling ideas to someone who was going to buy them. The buy side were people who were actually investing. So I had an opportunity to make the jump on the buy side and really focus more on private investment uh, with, uh, with triple point capital, which was you know, an interesting institution itself. You know, it was kind of this, this interesting area of venture capital that was you know, kind of combined debt and equity, both loan startups money, but then also you can invest in, in their equity directly as well. So that was kind of my first real job in venture after having sort of developed an interest in it while working on the, on the public investing side. That's amazing. Juan, you know, I, I, this whole time I had this burning question as with many MBAs do. Maybe I'm biased because when I say many, a lot of the people that I know <laughs> that went to the MBA with me, especially these days, want to get into venture capital. Right. And that's, that's typically a burning question. Like, how, what is the path to venture capital? And that was my question for you. But upon hearing your story and your background, 
made me realize you took the most practical path <laughs> to venture capital. <laughs> like the arc makes so much sense, right? You, you go from accounting to IB to public equities and from public equities, you got exposure to private equity at a later stage. And then you kind of work yourself backwards from like later to earlier. You're 100% right. And again, I, I started by telling you I had a practical upbringing. So, and how that impacted, you know, a lot of different things you know, throughout my life and throughout my career as well, including, you know, my, my again, my pathway to, to venture capital. You're absolutely right that um, I did a number of times think about jumping into, you know, particular startups that I thought were, particular, that were, were interesting and or potentially helping, you know, friends actually launch their startups. But in almost every case, I always had like my mother's voice in the back of my head saying like, right, well, if you don't have a salary, you know, then, you know, you're not going to be able to pay for this, 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 and like, you know, how long can you go without having a salary? And, and so I would always sit down and do that math. Like, okay, well, realistically, how long could I survive without, you know, a stable salary living in the Bay Area, which at that time, this was kind of mid 2000s, late 2000s, when I was really starting to explore things like that. And at that time, it certainly wasn't as expensive as it is now, but it was still way more expensive than a lot of other areas of the country. And so it was always like, well, I don't know, maybe it's not a great time to do that. And then, and then there would also always be something interesting that would happen along the way. Like when, again, I started to really think about this in kind of 2006, seven, but then also we had the, the financial crash um, in 2007 and eight. It was not a great time to jump and try to, because I didn't think at the time it was not a great time to not have a salary. Although there's a school of thought that says that you know, during those times is actually the best time to kind of go and take those chances. And sometimes I look back on that and I think, well, I kind of regret maybe not, not doing one of those, but I'm, I'm certainly happy with, with um, how my career has evolved over time uh, and the things I've done in my career and, and to regret the, the stops that I've made in my career that, you know, were all certainly very educational for me. You know, a article I read recently, the title was The Relationship Models Killing Venture Capital. It was an article talking about, you know, social and racial homogeneity in the VC industry how even though there were these huge boosts in funding for underrepresented and underserved you know, founders in 2020, 2021, that has dramatically scaled back in late 2021 and then because of the economy and whatnots. And you know, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that. How do we pick teams as investors and, and really get out of your own bubble, your relationship bubble, right? Of like-minded or people that, that look the same, right? <laughs> so there's a couple of different factors there. It's sort of a very complex issue, but there's several of the key factors that I, that I always like to highlight that I think are pretty important. And one that you highlighted, which is that, that one of sort of your own sort of insular networks and relationships. You know, VC firms are inherently fairly small organizations for the most part. The majority of them are, you know, less than 10 people. A lot of them are really less than five. But they are, they're also processing lots of information and lots of data. You're seeing lots of startups. And at an early stage, it's, you're seeing thousands of startups every year, and you're processing thousands of startups. And so part of the reason that there is this sort of, I don't want to call it an easy out, but part of the reason that a lot of VCs will only look at their networks is because it's a little bit easier for them right. you know, to pare down you know, what they think might be higher quality opportunities if they came from their existing network that they trust, you know, if you obviously know someone, you're more likely to trust that person and trust that, you know, that they might be successful in their, in their venture if you already know them well. 
And that certainly is a major issue in certainly both in, in the VC community, but also in the tech community as well. But in the VC community, that's a major issue because historically, so much of the VC industry was concentrated, certainly right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, like in a really small area at Palo Alto. And so if you were outside of that ecosystem, outside of that, that sort of tech bubble, it was hard to get access to. And I think that that still continues in some ways. I do think that that improved a little bit during COVID, you know, the COVID crisis, if there was you know, kind of a good thing that came out of that. During that time, you know, we also had the, you know, the big racial demonstrations around the George Floyd killing and racial injustice. And so during that time, I think it gave people time both while they were sitting at home and they couldn't leave to say, oh, wait, I don't have to make people come to me on Sand Hill Road or even more in San Francisco. I can get on a Zoom or a team or, or whatever call and, and I can talk to people across the country and even the possibility to find interesting entrepreneurs. So I think that started to change a little bit during that time. Has it stuck? That's a problem. I think the numbers tell us right now that at least in 2022, by and large, the VC industry kind of reverted back to you know, its sort of pre-2020 status quo, the one thing that Hasis hate. Yeah. And that was sort of the fear. Like during 2020 and 21, during the racial justice movement, you started to see that, okay, well, people were much more willing to take that chance to invest in minority founders. Again, ones that they didn't know that they came from outside of their networks. Right. They started to take that chance, but it didn't, you know, there wasn't a follow through necessarily in 2022. Similarly, for VCs themselves, you know, for minority VCs themselves, you saw the same thing. You, know, you saw this sort of influx of capital and, and of programs to help you know, minorities kind of develop pathways into VC and even launch you know, venture capital firms themselves. But fundraising, again, has kind of swung back to its kind of status quo as well. And so I think you, you still have to just continuously remind people that that, that issue still, is still there, right? And that it does require a little bit more work you know, to find interesting startup opportunities to invest in outside of your smaller, small-ish network and find, you know, really develop you know, the kind of a broader top of funnel with, you know, really the mindset, okay, well, if I want to find these minorities, minority-led startups where they are, I have to be there too. Juan, please tell us a little bit more about One Valley Ventures and what that's about. Yeah, so, so One Valley Ventures, we're a pre-seed and seed stage venture capital fund Based in the San Francisco Bay Area, we invest across North America uh, and LATAM today. We think our, our next fund will likely have an even larger global footprint. But we primarily invest thematically in uh, early stage companies that are really developing next generation technologies like AI machine learning, automation, robotics, uh, no code, et cetera. But we are affiliated with the One Valley Startup and Entrepreneurship Acceleration Platform. That platform has been around for about 10, 11 years really supporting founders all over the world with a variety of different resources. Well, you know, One Valley has developed a platform called Passport that um, is a digital platform that supplies entrepreneurs with access to mentors and advisors, access to an investor network, access to a uh, you know, massive knowledge base of educational materials. And then One Valley also white labels and sells its platform to other ecosystems uh, who want to activate and uh, manage and support their own startup ecosystem. So think universities, other large investment platforms, accelerators, and then foundations uh, as well. That's sort of what the One Value platform is. And in total, kind of today, One Value touches about 300,000 plus founders, both again directly and through 
you know, white labeling platform uh, for other other groups that are supporting founders in their own ways through the One Value platform. Several years ago, I met the team, the executive team of One Valley, and we started talking about, okay, well, what might it look like to go and, and, and start investing in some of the best and brightest companies that we see coming through the One Valley ecosystem? There's this you know, massive group of founders from all over the world that are coming through today. Why shouldn't we you know, look through those founders and see you know, who some of the most interesting founders are who are pursuing really big ideas? And so... We started to think about, okay, well, what stage would we want to invest in those founders? And since we were seeing them at the very early stage, we started, we started to say, okay, well, what kind of competencies could we develop to invest in those companies at that stage? And one of them was, one, hiring a you know, venture capital professional to come onto the team, which was me. So I joined forces with the One Valley team back in 2020 to start to plan and launch and lead what eventually became One Valley Ventures. Uh, and then we launched the One Valley, One Valley Fund. Uh, in 2021, we started actively investing in sort of mid-2021. We currently have 13 portfolio companies. We'll likely double that this year because we're sort of picking up the pace of the investments that we're making. Yeah, super excited about the portfolio that we're building and super excited about the you know, value ecosystem and some really interesting nodes that, that we're going to start dialing up as well in 2020, 2023 that we think will, again, start to scale both the ecosystem and and the investment side of One Valley Ventures as well. And so super excited about that. We're really, you know, founders who are more interested will tell me to reach out to me as well. My information is actually on onevalueventures.com. So yeah, please reach out. I'm going to ask a question on any entrepreneurs listening's behalf. How big is the fund? And, you know, how far along in the fund are you? So we're still fundraising. We're $25 million target. We keep completing the first close. Again, it's 2021. Brought in some additional capital. Uh, and we're, I'd say, so again, we're really only a year and a half into actively investing the fund. Again, only you know, 13 portfolio companies. We expect to have closer to 60 portfolio companies when we're done. So we have several more years of investing out of this fund. Now, we may start fundraising for fund two, you know, in another year and a half or so, or maybe sooner if, again, if we, if we pick up the pace even more. But yeah, we're about, we're about, I'd say we're still very much in the early stages of this fund's life cycle, right? We're kind of only a year and a half in, basically. Perfect. <laughs> and funds are kind of 10 to 12-year entities, and we're only basically a year and a half in. Right. That's exactly, I'm sure, what everyone's wondering. So if you're a Hossi entrepreneur listening, please reach out to Juan. <laughs> good. Really appreciate having you on today. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. Go Bears.